morning. All right, Trace said this up front, but we'll see it again. There are some chairs in back there, so if you find yourself being cooked and, you know, about 10, 15 minutes, you feel that sharp burning sensation that at least I feel when I'm in the sun, you're welcome to move into the back there. And if you need more chairs, uh, Lee, would you raise your hand? That's uh, Mr. Lee here. So if we do run out of chairs, if you see him, he can snag you some more as well. All right, let's open our Bibles to John chapter 12. We are we're pressing ahead in the story. We're, our, our text today is John 12, 12 through 19. So by way of recap, if you haven't been joining us, so for this year, we've actually been working through the book of John. Uh, it's been really good. I've been uh, really blessed. I, I hope you guys have been too, learning about Jesus, his life, his ministry. John is one of uh, the four gospels, and John kind of stands alone. He, he's, he's unique from the other three gospels. Do we know what we call those other three together? The three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they've got a name. Synoptic Gospels, yeah. Those three stories all kind of, they're a lot closer in the narrative, and John is a lot different in the narrative. And Trace brought this out last week, is what's really unique about John, amongst other things, is the fact that the first part of John, we're in chapter 12, and we've pretty much ran all of Jesus' life. The, John focuses heavily on the last week of his life. So what we're going to do here is Jesus is heading into Jerusalem. When Jesus goes to Jerusalem, it's, it's on, right? This is it's go time, right? So Jesus goes into the wilderness. Yeah, there's going to be some prayers, some miracles. People are going to get fed. But Jesus goes to Jerusalem. People are going to get offended. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, you know, he, he's in his city there. So let's bow our heads. Let's pray, and then we'll read our text. Father, again, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to study, Father, to, to learn more about you, to learn about your son, and, Father, to learn about our place in the world, our, our relationship with you through the son. So we ask that you would anoint our ears, Father God. Would you help me to convey the truth from your word, Lord? And uh, we give you all the honor and all the glory. Lord, your word declares that no flesh shall glory in your presence. So we thank you that no human being would ever get the glory, Father, that you alone, as we just sang, are high and lifted up. We worship you now and thank you. In Jesus' name, church said, amen. amen. So John 12, 12 through 19, I'll read this. It says, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as, as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. All right. Exciting stuff. Jesus riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. Now, we have a shorter text today. You know, sometimes it just falls that way when we're trying to keep to the narrative of the text. Some unfortunate pastors have to do 50 verses, right? So you're like, okay, what are we going to talk about today? So this is a, a nice opportunity to take a small section of Scripture and really kind of examine it in depth. Now, if you're a note taker, this story is found in all the other Gospels as well, and you can make a quick note if you want to, but this is Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Mark 11, 1 through 11, Luke 19, 28 through 40. Now, I mentioned those. We're not going to read them today, but they're all a little bit different. This account looks a little bit different. We'll point out uh, really quickly right now. I'll tell you some of the highlights of what's different about it. 
But John is the only one that actually mentions that these are palm branches. All the other Gospels just say they laid branches. The other Gospels mention the fact that they also took off their coats and laid their coats on the ground, right? So John just has the palm branches. The other Gospels say that the disciples actually went out and got the donkey and brought it back to Jesus, right? And this one just said Jesus got the donkey, okay? So this is interesting. Uh, we're not going to pull on these threads, but, but, but there's lots of reasons. So let's talk about, uh, let's go, we're, what we're going to do is we're going to go line by line. We're going we're gonna to bring out the text. So let's go back to verse 12. It says, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So what recent event caused people to care about Jesus coming to Jerusalem? The text already told us. Why do they care right now? Signs. The sign. What's a particular sign? Lazarus. Right? So earlier, uh, over the last two weeks, We've had the Lazarus affair, right? So two weeks ago, Lazarus was raised from the dead. Not two weeks ago in the text, but we preached two weeks ago that Lazarus was raised from the dead. Uh, then last week, we had the curious case. The Jews were so angry about Lazarus being raised from the dead, said, we've got to kill this guy. Could you imagine being raised from the dead only to be wanted? I mean, it's like now everybody wants to kill me because I came back to life. And this is because Lazarus now has turned into an evangelist. Everybody heard about it. Lazarus is telling his story, right? And it says the multitudes now are starting to come to Jesus and believe in him because they all saw the sun. Like, this is something that can't be refuted. A man who was dead. How many days was Lazarus dead? Say again? Four. Yeah, I heard some say it. Four. This is dead, right? This is not maybe dead, not passed out. This is, this is dead, right? He came. So what happens is, is we're, what week is this uh, in Jerusalem? So what's being celebrated? Do you remember? Say again? Passover. Passover. Yeah, this is the big one, right? This is the biggie. So Passover is about, we're a week before Passover. Uh, it's about to be celebrated. So um, Josephus records uh, in ancient history that Jerusalem could swell to over 2.7 million people in Jerusalem at this time. Now, if you think of a city, uh, you know, back around zero, you know, maybe 3 A.D., this is humongous, right? There are millions of people in Jerusalem. All the pilgrims from all over this area are descending upon Jerusalem. So we're saying all this is because I want you to start to get an image of what's happening here. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and he's the talk of the town, right? So this guy, this, somebody had been raised from the dead. All these pilgrims, millions of people are descending upon Jerusalem. And these people that have heard about Jesus, that, that are bearing witness to this miracle, are waiting for him. And what they do is they go get palm branches, and they find him riding into the city on a donkey. And they're all laying their palm branches down. They're taking off their coats and they're crying out to him. Okay, so you've got a good mental picture of what's happening, right? Verse 13, it says, So they took the branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So these palm fronds, that sounds awesome to say, palm frond, palm frond. Thank you. Um, palm branches, that's going to be easier so I don't block this up. So these palm branches, they go out and lay out. They're actually used in two different festivals. They're used in uh, the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Dedication for worship. They represented kingship and victory. So by greeting him with these palm branches, they were welcome, welcoming him as king. This is a very symbolic act, right? So it's not just something because it looks cool, you know, you have this big imagery. Is It means something. These palm branches... You laid these branches down at Jesus' feet. You're declaring that he is king. Now, if you remember earlier, the crowds wanted to make him king, but Jesus ultimately eluded it. In John 6, after he fed the 5,000, John tells us, 
This is a quote from 15. It says, Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So we're having a shift in the narrative here because Jesus now is accepting the people people's demand for him to be king. Do you see this? They're laying down these palm branches signifying he's king. And instead of running from it, Jesus now humbly takes a donkey and accepts the people's grant for him to be king. This is what's happening here. It's a very, very big deal, right? So before it was his time, Jesus rejected the kingship. You're like, you're repeating yourself. Yes, I really want to make this clear. And now Jesus is coming into Jerusalem as the king. He's going to get himself killed, my friends. So could you imagine now, again, painting the mental narrative here. Let's say somebody came up in the United States. Now, historically, the United States has a long, complicated history with kings, right? It's like, you know, we don't do well with these things. But just kind of imagine, we, we have a leader, we have a president, right? And it changes out. But let's say somebody got very popular, and he was doing things. He was actually a, a true man of the people, right? He was feeding people. He was healing people. He was for the people. And he was speaking out against the government and all the wicked things and all the terrible things he says. He's, he's fighting for the oppressed. All the things that, that people have cried out about forever, right? Look at the injustices in our society. And this man comes and starts doing this. And he gains a following. And the people go say, hey, this is our leader. This is our king. How do you think our government would react to this? No. It's not going to go well. They're going to find this guy, right? And this isn't a small scale. Like we said, Jesus is coming in there. And all, everybody's waiting for this guy, and all this scene is converging upon Jerusalem, welcoming somebody else as king. So the Jews are ang- the Pharisees are angry, and the Romans are also going to start taking note of these things, right? Because the Jews cannot kill him on Passover. Somebody else is going to have to kill him, and this is going to be where the Romans come in. So I want you, your headspace to be like that. Could you imagine that, like this country in such an uproar that we're about to put somebody else on the throne outside of our position? And it's even greater when you actually have a king, when you actually have you know, somebody that are over these things. Now Jesus coming into this and acknowledging the fact that he is the true king of Israel. So Jesus is also back out in the open. So this is another narrative change. In John 11:54, it says that after he raised Lazarus from the dead, he no longer walked openly among the Jews. It says the reason he did this in verse 57 is because the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was to notify them that they might arrest him. So after Lazarus comes up, Jesus goes back into hiding. He's done this a couple times, right? He's, he's, he's gotten public and he's shrunk it back down. He goes big and then he goes back down. This is, this is how he's doing these things. And they wanted to arrest him again. And so j- just recently in the last chapter, he goes into hiding. And now he's back out in the open. So if you think about it, it says everybody knew he was coming. They knew where he was coming in at and the donkey is riding on. So this is also a slap in the face, right? He's been hiding, but yet all the people knew where to go meet this guy at, right? So think about that. Like there's, there's bigger things going on here, right? A man in hiding, everybody's waiting for him. And then he shows up and all the people are there ready to greet him as king. Verse 13 it says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Hosanna is literally defined as save now. That's what this word means, save now. But a lot like now, Hosanna is just a general term of praise, right? So when we sing out Hosanna, people cry it out. It's just a term of praise, right? But its, it's literal definition is save now. Now this comes from Psalm 118, uh, verses 25 and 26 is what they're crying out for. It says this, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords upon the horns of the altar. Now, in the original context of this psalm, 
they're actually addressed to pilgrims that are coming to the temple, right? So it says, we will bless you. So this is uh, verse uh, 6. It says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The he they're talking about are the pilgrims that are coming in, right? This is actually a plural word. Blessed are the people coming to worship the Lord in the temple. Do you see what's happening here? Yeah? Okay. I know it's hot, so bear with me here, right? So all these things are going to matter. So this is what it means. They're blessing the people that are coming. Now, in this cry to Jesus, they added the words, um, blessed is the, even the king of Israel, right? So they've, they've changed the psalm, and they're, they're crying out to the king of Israel, and they're crying out to the one who's coming in the name of the Lord, different from how the psalm is used. Now, putting this all together, the people are crying out, yes, you are the one, you are the king, the king of Israel. And we know that ultimately here in a couple chapters, they're going to reject him as king again, and they're going to cry out, we have no king but Caesar. Now, one thing we can learn as we, we study John is how fickle people are, right? Several chapters ago, they wanted to make him king. And then at one point, Jesus says something, and they all want to leave him. They all do. Most of them do leave, right? He does another miracle, and they all come back. Right now, they're crying out he's king. But in less than a week, they're going to say, we have no king but Caesar, right? So it's a very, very fickle group here that are welcoming him. Okay. Verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, Jesus arrives into Jerusalem, not in a militaristic fashion, riding on a war horse, right? So in Rome, war horses are a big thing. These things are around, they're available, right? But Jesus purposefully chooses a donkey. Because Jesus now is not the military king. Now, if you're taking notes, this quotation comes from Zechariah 9.9. I'm going to read it to you, but it's interesting if we turn there. And we're also going to add verses 10, because the Bible does this a lot. It, it kind of gives us a reference, but if you keep reading it, it gets a lot deeper. Look what it says. Zechariah 9, verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, let's add verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall be, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So it says here that he takes away the chariots, he takes away the vehicles of war, he takes away the war horses. The battle bow will be broken, and he proclaims peace to the nations. So Jesus purposefully not riding this war horse and riding a lowly donkey, humility, right? He's on this donkey. Because everyone's expecting, Jesus, I mean, the Jews are still expecting a king that's going to lead them to victory over the Romans. But what image is he doing? He's, he's showing up. If you were expecting the king to come into the city, literally, what are you thinking about? This guy riding in on a war horse, right? Riding in on a chariot. He's doing something that says, okay, this is our king, right? Has anyone seen Gladiator? Yeah. I mean, you imagine Russell Crowe riding in on a donkey? You'd be like, wait a minute, time out. This is not going to go well. I mean, I hate to knock myself, but that's how you expect the Air Force to roll up, right? Not the Marine Corps, right? Like, hey, so, sorry. I'm in the Air Force. I mean, you can be, make fun of yourself, right? No, but, no, no you can't. No, I'm going to tear you guys later, so don't worry about it. It's coming. I'm kidding. But the idea of this king, right, this, the king of Israel, the long-awaited Messiah riding on a donkey, this is going to confuse a lot of people, 
right? Because like, they didn't know how he was showing up. Nobody told him. They went out there with palm branches to meet the king. And I was like, wait a minute. Is that a donkey? <laughs> you know, is this, is this happening like this? So this is, this is what's going on here. And it's interesting that the, the scripture says, he shall speak peace to the nations. And his reign shall be from sea to sea, from, to the, from river to river, to the ends of the earth. Jesus has no foes that concern him, right? Because he doesn't need war horses and battles because he's already conquered them. He is already victorious. He's already won. You don't need a standing army if you have no enemies or no enemies are going to present a problem to you. Amen? This is awesome. You realize how utterly awesome our king is because no foe can stand before him alone. He doesn't need these things. So um, a scholar, Colin Cruz, says this, and I think he summarizes it best. I wanted to read this. He says, fulfilling this prophecy, Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey to show that he was the king of the Jews, not in a militaristic messiah of popular expectation, but the universal prince of peace. So the imagery Jesus wants us to see here is the humble prince of peace heading into Jerusalem. Okay? Do, not be, do not lose this as we, as we keep reading here. Verse 16. It says his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Now, if you're playing along with us, the disciples often would not understand the significance of what was happening until after Jesus' death and resurrection. In John 2.22, it says, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said these things, and they believed the scripture at the word that Jesus had spoken. In John 13, coming up, 6 and 7, he says, he came to Simon Peter, who said, Lord, why do, you, why do you wash my feet? Jesus said to him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. What happens is, is Jesus promised that when the Holy Spirit came, things would be abundantly clear to them. In John 14, 26, it says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring you in remembrance of all that I have said to you. So the disciples here, this is just very common. These things are happening to them. So as we read the story and we're, we're thinking about these guys, it's very easy for us to judge because we know what's going to happen. We've read these things lots of times. And it's like, man, how could these guys miss it? How could Peter think like this? I mean, this is happening in real time to them. They're blind to these things, right? If you and I were in Jerusalem and we're hanging out with Jesus for three years and he's like, hey, go get a donkey and ride into Jerusalem. Would any of you think, oh, yeah, Zechariah 9? No. We're like, you're going to what? You're going to get yourself killed. They want to arrest you, right? This is real. We're not thinking like, the, uh, you know, like we're, we're these deep theo, uh, I can't say it. Theologians. Theologians. There it goes. We're not these deep thinkers thinking about these things. Like you're worried about your life. You're watching all these things happen. You've seen dead people raised. You've seen miracle after miracle. You're caught up in the hype. At least I would be, right? If I'm really being objective here, I'm not going back and saying, hey, where else is this in the Bible? Right? So these guys are blind to it. They just didn't understand what was happening. And I would argue that nobody else understands these. The Pharisees aren't seeing these things. It's just these things are happening in real time. And the Holy Spirit comes, and he begins to illuminate later on and after Jesus dies. And everybody's like, oh, yeah. Now, what does that mean to you and I as our lives unfold? As we, you know, Because we live in a time that is tumultuous, right? Like things are changing. We wonder where we're at in God's big grand scheme of things, what are happening. A lot of people try to, they read the Bible and say, oh, this is where we're at right now. How many of you have ever heard that, right? Have you ever heard bad prophecies like the world's going to end or this is going to happen and then nothing happens, right? I would argue, and I actually really do stick to this, is when it happens, we won't know what's happening and afterwards we'll look back and say, oh, that's when that was. 
Because that's always the model in Scripture. When God does things like that, it's very rare that really people really know what's going on. Even the birth of Jesus. Is this really him? There's a couple people that knew, right? There's some wise men that went and they brought the gifts. But nobody really knew. When the Messiah was born, they're like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, people just didn't know. Like, the dots aren't connected. And I think a lot of times prophecy and things that are happening are concealed for a reason. Right? It's not just, oh, I read this. Oh, this must be what's happening. Because these people walking with Jesus, Jesus tries to explain it to them. Look, I'm going to die. I'm doing this. He keeps saying it. And nobody really gets it. So, yeah, 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 yeah. You're not going to die. You're not going to die. You can't die. You're the king. And he was born to die. It's the one man who was born to die. Right? So, hopefully that makes sense. So, when you hear people talking about prophecy or where this is at, uh, I use the analogy, you hold it like you're holding a bird. Is If you squeeze it too tight, you'll kill the bird. If you hold it too loose, the bird flies away. Right? So, you, you hold on to it. You can hold your convictions. But remember, the model is, is most people weren't fully aware of what was happening until after it was over. Okay. That seemed to excite the crowd. So you guys calm down. Let's go to verse 17. We're making good progress here. It says, The crowd who had been with him uh, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Mark that in your Bible. They continued to bear witness. 18, it says, The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this particular sign. Now, scholars cite the fact that John's recipe for discipleship is exactly this, to believe and then to bear witness. When you believe in Jesus, the thing you do is you bear witness about it, right? So this is a theme we see over and over again in John, is you believe and then you bear witness to the fact of what I saw and what I I believe. And it's important the scripture says this because this is what's hyping up the crowds. This is the guy that raised uh, Lazarus from the dead. They continue to bear witness. Lazarus is there, right? This is the guy. This is the guy. And all the more are coming to faith. If you go back to verse 9, it says, When the large crowds of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on the account of him, of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Right? So this raising of Lazarus is a huge catalyst for what's about to go down here. Because the last major thing that Jesus did was actually he got rid of a lot of disciples, right? And now he's plussing back up the numbers here. And it's all because of what happened with Lazarus. So when Jesus, does this make more sense why Jesus waits four days to raise Lazarus? So Jesus knowing what this testimony is going to do for the kingdom, right? So we we can go back in time and it starts to make sense because Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick. And he says, yeah, i got some other things to do. We'll, we'll, we'll be there in a minute. Remember, he shows up. He's like, oh, he's dead. Not only has he died, he died four days ago. And his sisters were like, man, if you were here, you could have saved him. You see God's plans and purposes. His plan wasn't, he said, look, this is going to be for the glory of the kingdom. Now, a man coming back from the dead, that, that does glorify the kingdom. And it really matters to Lazarus and, and Mary and Martha and his sisters. But you see what Jesus really meant here? It was this testimony that was causing the droves to be driven to believe in Jesus, to welcome him as a Messiah, to pique this curiosity. This peak in curiosity, what's the purpose of it? Because we know these people are going to reject him. The purpose is, is because it's going to stir people up enough to finally kill Jesus. He says all these curious things throughout the book of John. He says, my time is not yet. My hour is not yet come. Remember the first miracle he does? He talks to his mom. He's like, look, what is it to me, woman? My hour has not yet come. Have you ever said that to a woman? What is it to me, woman? Try it tonight. (laughs) 
trust me. Just try it. Just try it. Be sincere about it. You can't fake it like I'm kidding around. Say, what is it to me, woman? Okay? See if you're not wearing a pot of spaghetti upside your head within about 30 seconds. Right? But it's a curious phrase. He says, my, my time is not yet. And if you study it out, you realize whenever he refers to time, he's looking at his death. He's like, basically, when I do this miracle, you started me on my way to the cross. Right? Because once this miracle, I'm out in the open. Right? The, the timer has started. He's like, my hour is not yet. What is it to me? It's not my time. Like, you're asking me to do something that's going to put me into the ministry. He does it. And he's going to be dead within three and a half years of this moment. So this time, everyone is looking at. Okay, so the people believed and they, they bore witness to this fact, of this great, great miracle. So verse 19, it says, Then the Pharisees said to one another, it says, you see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. If we put this in a correct English phrasing, it actually says this. We have proved ineffective at stopping Jesus. That would be the way to say it. Look, guys, everything we've done has not stopped him. You see, the whole world has gone after him. I'm not going to steal Trace's thunder for next week, but this is an inadvertent prophecy about the whole world is about to go after him. We're going to see people other than the Jews in the coming verses coming to Jesus. Right? This is amazing. The whole world is going to go after him. Okay, so for the last couple minutes, that's our text. It's a real easy text. Jesus, if we, if we put it in the context of the scripture, Jesus comes out of hiding to a glorious reception of thousands of people welcoming and declaring this is the king into Jerusalem. This is setting the stage for, for the showdown for the coming weeks as, as we read these things. Now, there are some interesting things that are happening in the scripture that I wanted to tell you. These are what we would call like some, uh, some thread that you get to pull on. Like, hey, if you pull on this, uh, it, it, it doesn't really add to the, the text and context, but there's some bigger themes that are happening here that might interest you if you're a Bible nerd, and I, I definitely am, and I want to bring them up, uh, some references for you. So the first is what I would call the donkey theme. Donkey theme, if you're taking notes. Sounds exactly like I said it. There is a theme about donkeys that runs through your Bible. And it's one of those ones that you, if you're just reading the Bible kind of casually, you actually miss these things. Like, the Bible talks a lot about donkeys, yes. I'm not going to give you all of them because the fun is in exploring your Bible and discovering these things for yourself. It actually shows up in Genesis. In Genesis 49, there's a prophecy given to Judah. Now, does anyone remember what tribe Jesus is from? Yeah, Jesus is the what from Judah? He's the lion from the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49, starting in verse 8, here's the prophecy. It says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of all peoples. This is an awesome prophecy about the lion from the tribe of Judah, right? He's the ultimate ruler shall come from him. But look at in verse 11. It says, binding his foal his, to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Like Jesus is the choice vine, right? Like you know this. Like this is amazing. So this young donkey shall be bound to it. And he has washed his garments in wine and his vestitures in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. You can keep reading that. But we see this prophecy of this young donkey being uh, uh, tied to the vine. 
in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 32, it says, King David, now David, I should give you some uh, back up into this. So David is about to die. He's, he's on his deathbed. He's laying in, in bed, and he's so old, his body can't keep warm. And so what they do is they bring in a, a young virgin into the bed to keep him warm. Does anyone remember her name? Come on, Abishag. You know, that's an awesome name, Abishag. And the Bible says he didn't have adult relations with her. Don't worry, this isn't a crass story. But this is the, I just remembered this part of his life where a man so old actually have to have people around him to keep him warm. And he calls in his wife and he's, he's giving instructions and prophecies and he's doing all these things that you do because you're about to give up the ghost. In 1 Kings 1.32, he wants to talk about his son. Who's David's son? Solomon. Solomon. King David said, call to me Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada. Oh man, I might have got that right. Jehoiada. Then they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride in my own mule. What's a mule? Donkey horse. Donkey horse. It's a male donkey, uh, female horse hybrid. It's like a liger, if you know the ligers from Napoleon, but different. And bring him down to Gahon, and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live the king of Saul. Long live King Solomon. He shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place, and I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. So we see the son of David riding in on this donkey hybrid. And you're like, well, that's a mule, that's half horse, it doesn't count. Did David have horses and stables full of war horses? Yes, the scriptures are big on these things. But it was very clear, it's like, this is what I want him to ride in on to be anointed king. You can't be lost on this, because if you read the other texts, the other in the Synoptic Gospels, the story of Jesus riding out on the donkey, they're all crying out, Son of David. Right? They're, they're making this, this claim that the Son of David is actually riding in, too, on his kingship here. Okay. Now, on the same thing, the last thing I'll give you, you need to go study this out because there's a lot more. There's a lot going on in Samuel and these other books. But in Psalm 33, 17, not only, so what you do is if you're studying out these kind of themes, is you look at in my mind, the opposite of a donkey is, a, is what? Now, you know what my mind is, but I would think a horse, a war horse. Right? We've used this analogy that the donkey is the polar opposite of it. Uh, I was going to do some Shrek references, but I think I would just derail it at this point, so we'll leave that alone. 37, Psalm 33:17 says this, The war horse is false hope for salvation, and by it great a might it cannot rescue. There's interesting things if you study horses in the Bible as well. Shouldn't be lost that when Jesus comes back, what is he riding? He's actually riding a war horse. But the psalmist actually talks a lot about how, like, trusting in horses, not a good thing. Really interesting, right, this idea of trusting these for battle. Audrey read earlier this morning, says, don't trust in men, out of Psalm 146. That's the idea. There's two things psalms tell us not to trust for deliverance, horses and people. Uh, so these are all related. So go study them out. Have fun with it. Um, the second, second last thing we'll say is in Zechariah 9, when the people cried out, um, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion, shout out loud, Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humbly mounted on a donkey. I want you to focus in on that word, humbly riding on a donkey, because really the point of the text is it shows Jesus' humility. And humility is probably one of the larger themes that run throughout the Bible. What's the opposite of, of humility? Pride. Does the Bible talk about pride? An awful lot, right? These are some of the biggest things. Now, Jesus here is represented as the ultimate humble figure. 
Now, in the Old Testament, who is the humblest man in the Old Testament? Okay, I'm going to host a Bible trivia at my house, and I'm going to rock you guys. You're just going to get crushed. The Bible says that Moses was the humblest man that walked on the face of the earth. It actually says that. Could you imagine having that said about you? I mean, that, that's an amazing thing. Did Moses write that? We don't know. <laughs> but it says he was the humblest man to walk on the face of the earth. Now, Jesus is greater than Moses. And you think of the humility, the actual true king of kings, the guy who created all things. The Bible says that he despised the shame and he went to the cross. Could you imagine how lowly this is? It says the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's sleeping out in the desert. He's laying his head on rocks. And the Bible says the whole earth is his. He created it for himself. And he comes, and he's washing feet, and he's hanging out with the lowest of the low. And he allows these ungrateful people to murder him. We can't even drive in our cars without murdering somebody else, right? We get cut off. Does anyone else get angry? Like, I'm not saying you have road rage, but does anyone else just find themselves getting angry at stupid things besides me? Jerry? Okay, me and Jerry and Trace. Okay, yes. All right, thank you. Two more. Nobody else gets angry at just, okay, well, whatever. There are people in this world that just get crazy. I mean, it's like, this is just making me stupid. And it's like, you think about it, and it doesn't mean anything, right? Once you calm yourself down. If somebody cuts in line, these things these things just frustrate me to know. I'm just like, these are just terrible people on earth, you know, somebody who cut in front of me. And, but when I think about it, it's because I'm worried about me. I'm worried about where I'm going, what I want, right? Like, how come this guy gets to do it and I can't do it? Because I have a sense of propriety. What a jerk, right? And then I tear that person down. Jesus here has lived a perfect life, and they're going to kill him. I can't imagine the bad attitude I would have if I was Jesus with the Pharisees, right? You say you're my people, like this is my chosen people, and you don't recognize me? Boy, I would be a terrible God, right? I would be a vengeful, angry, you know, I'd be taking these things out. But Jesus, what does he do? He just takes it. He literally turns the other cheek. He's like, keep keep it coming. I'm still going to love you. This is what's going to happen. The humility of Jesus, really, if you're a Christian, should be studied out. The humility in the Bible... If you wanted to ever do a word study, like I enjoy like studying out donkey themes in the Bible and all these kind of fun things. They're like, oh, this is kind of weird. But honestly, the best time you could spend is studying about pride and humility and where we fit into this equation. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2 says this. It says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved, loved you and he gave himself up for us and, and offering a sacrifice to God as a, a fragrant aroma. So we're to imitate him, friends. Like, we really have to be imitators. Like, you remember when it got popular for people to wear bracelets that said uh, WWJD, what would Jesus do? It becomes a cliche. But you're to imitate him. Like, he's the role model. And this humility, this idea of if I rolled into Jerusalem, I want people to see, I want my best foot forward. It's like, I need to have a PR campaign here. I need a horse. Okay? I need a horse. Like, this is going to happen. I need a robe. I need a crown. I need some hair. I need something. And Jesus does the exact opposite. He's like, man, go get a donkey. Matter of fact, get a young donkey so it's even more ridiculous. It's not even full grown. Let's ride this thing in there. And laying down palm branches and coats, this is, I mean, this is weird as it sounds. I, I can't get over this enough, right? But then you start searching the scriptures and you see there's, there's some very deep precedent here. Last scripture of the day comes from James 4, 6 through 10. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves before God and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Uh, be wretched and mourn and weep. 
Uh, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The, the biggest reason sometimes I think Christians fight, they have so much strife in, in their life is because there's so much pride there. God, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian, God resists the proud. This is something you can take to the bank. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And the biggest thing I would say is like if we're going to pull something from this text today is the humility of Jesus is just amazing here, friends. He's purposely walking to his death in the lowest, the humblest way possible. Still putting people above him. And his eyes are on the prize. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this word. Thank you for the example, Jesus. I just pray that the word spoken today, Father, whatever is not true, may it fall off people's ears, may it fall on, on deaf places, Father. But that which is from your spirit, Father, Lord, would you stir it up in our hearts? Would you remind us, Father, would you get us excited about your word, that we're reading an account of something, Lord, that has, is of monumental significance, Father God, that echoes throughout eternity. And, Father, grow our desire for your word and for your people, Father, and for your glory. We thank you. And the church said, amen.